0: It went viral. It was everywhere. I used to tell my father, you will see one day, I will make a film and I will go to Cannes.
1: <laughs> I felt insulted. I was like, where is my audience? I didn't go to therapy. I think I should. This
2: is an empire Stories of exceptional Arabs around the world and their journey to the top. This is Dana Balut. And I'm Hibba Fisher. And you're listening to an empire. Uh, Hibba, when we first landed this interview, our Slack channel went mad. <laughs> it was all caps of OMG and WTFs. And I personally think, no, I'm not, I can't say that. <laughs> I can't say that. Okay. I was going to say, I personally peed from excitement. <laughs> okay. Can you tell everyone who we're talking about? Yeah.
0: Wait, but first, maybe you can guess. Just listen to him.
1: I mean, I grew up with public radio on all the time. I say that at the outset and the way that the public radio voice is talked and then, uh, you know, that sort of very modulated metronomic way that they tell you the news. Like that was I, that was the sort of background noise of, of my car rides with my dad to school. So I always like like so many people, I was just like, this is Boring as f- and I, <laughs> I don't know why anyone would listen to this. Please put on music. Like I, I was that kid, um, but I do remember the moment when it felt in, enticing, and I do remember there was a moment where we were driving to Oberlin, where I would where I went to college, and maybe it was the first time or one of the first few times. And there's this part of the drive where you you, you turn off the highway and you drive through this town called Illyria. And uh, it was just one of those, like, it doesn't have a lot of streetlights, it was super dark. And we're driving, and somewhere on the radio, a story from the, the Lost and Found Sound series came on. And somebody had found in their attic one of these old vinyl records where Tennessee Williams, the playwright himself, had made. And it was the only recording of his voice and i remember we were driving through the night and like this voice kind of came on i was like oh my god it's like a ghost it's like a voice from the past and the whole experience of listening to this gorgeously constructed story and then this ghostly voice emerges from the middle of it i do remember just feeling there like suspended in the darkness you know as we were driving i was like Feel like I'm floating in the experience of the story. And it's one of a million moments where I thought, I want to make other people feel that way.
2: Uh, yes, my dear podcast nerds and lovers of radio and lovers of Radio Lab today we are bringing you the amazing and wonderful and ever inspiring Jad Abumrad. He is the creator and host of Radio Lab, a show with over 12 million listeners a month It's a lot of f-ing listeners. <laughs> I mean, Radiolab is what
0: made me fall in love with radio, like, when we, before Kerning Gultures, I started listening to Radiolab in 2008, Mm -hmm. and it is, I never knew that radio could be so good.
2: Yeah. It's also nice to hear an Arab name on such a big platform. So... For those of you who don't know, in addition to being the host of Radiolab um, with, again, 12 million listeners a month, he has also since created other industry-defining podcasts like More Perfect and Dolly Parton's America, which I love. He is, for many of us podcasters, the gold standard of what good radio sounds like a combination of deep reporting with childlike wonder and curiosity, with intricate sound design and a deep, deep appreciation for the crafts of radio. His work has always been a huge inspiration to us at Kerning Cultures. And in fact, if it weren't for Jad's work, I don't know that you'd be listening to this podcast right now. I don't think so. (laughs) So here we go, guys. Today on an Empire, Jad Abumrad. Jed started
0: out as a reporter at the New York public radio station, WBAI. And then he moved over to another public radio station in New York, WNYC, which is where he started Radio Lab some 18 years ago. Now the show is staffed by a team of like 20 producers, and they've won some of the biggest awards in radio and journalism. Their stories have been adapted over to TV and otherwise in the last few years, Jad has produced and hosted a few spin-off shows as well, most recently Dolly Parton's America, which, Dana, I know you're obsessed with. Obsessed. <laughs> um, it's a deep-dive documentary series into the musician Dolly Parton and her life and her cultural impact in the U.S. and, and globally. Um, so the day I met Jad, uh, I walked into WNYC Studios uh, in New York, and I literally was—I, I, I, like— there are—I mean—we've had the pleasure of of interviewing really cool people on AlEmpire. I think none have I been more um, just in eager anticipation of than Jad's. It's—it's like meeting, you know this this role model that that you have um and anyway so so we meet he ushers me into the studio and his studio like you guys have probably seen some photos on instagram of, of our studios which is you know closets and under covers in our bedrooms and he walks me into this professional recording studio and then we don't sit in the same room if you can picture this so he's on one side there's a glass panel. And I'm on the other side, and I can see like his two eyes poking up above the pop filter of the mic, and like this is the interview, which I'm, I've never done an interview in such a professional setting before. Um, and and then he also flips the table. So I came with all my recording gear, but but he he ended up recording the interview. Like he just dove right into sound engineer mode and and did it all himself. And
1: you- you, can you hear me? I can. <laughs> I've, I've never. Done
0: it, it was. Before. Um, it it was it was really cool. It was so cool to see him in action. Yeah.
1: Yeah, we're good. So uh, I am at your service now.
0: <laughs> okay. Um, what is your name? What do you do, Jad?
1: <laughs> it's interesting to hear someone say Jad because that takes I. That's a. I immediately. Uh, that's always the different pronunciation between when I know I'm talking to my family and when I'm. Talking to everybody else here, <laughs> here we say Jad with a J. Um, Jad, uh, I uh, uh, did you ask me what I do or what's my name?
0: Uh, can you introduce yourself? Yeah,
1: my name is Jad Abumrad. I am the host and creator of Radiolab, and More Perfect, a few other things, and most recently Dolly Parton's America.
0: Okay, let's start at the very beginning. Where were you born?
1: I was born in Syracuse, New York.
0: Oh, okay, I, but you grew up in Nashville, Tennessee. Is that right?
1: I, I grew up in Tennessee. Uh, we moved there when I was five, I think. Yeah. And uh, I was born in Syracuse, uh, lived in Lebanon for, I don't know, in total two years, 18 months, two years, somewhere between the age of one and five, a couple different stints. And then uh, my family, it's funny, I, I as part of the Dolly Parton project, oddly enough, I ended up talking to my dad about those early years and learning a lot. Uh, and my family was many times going to go back to Lebanon, uh, but uh, that would have been 77, 76, when the war got really nasty. Uh, and so then we ended up uh, resettling in, in Nashville and staying there for 13 years. And then there was college, and now there's New York.
0: Uh what what was your household like growing up? What are your parents like and and what kind of a home were you raised in?
1: My parents are doctors and well, a doctor and a scientist. Um and and we grew I so a lot of uh they were very um hardworking. Uh, I my earliest memories of them reading articles with uh like spectacles balanced at the end of their nose. <laughs> and, uh a lot of um, there were always sort of fellow scientists, usually like Lebanese scientists, kind of crawling about the house. Because when my parents came to uh, to Nashville, I just remember that suddenly there was all these other Lebanese people started showing up, and uh, I later learned that my dad was getting people out of Lebanon and bringing them to Nashville, and uh, that included family members. So we there was a year where my aunt and uncle. His brother, my mom's sister, were living with us, and we put them through high school uh, because they couldn't go back. And so there was always like a lot of family around. Um, My grandma and grandpa lived with us for 15, 20 years, I think. There's just always a lot of people, and I never really thought to ask why, but now I know it's because the political situation was such a, a catastrophe that people were just coming to Nashville to escape and my dad and mom became this like bridge to get people out and they so we our our house was always crawling with Lebanese people um i was kind of a shy nerdy kid so i i i um i had like a little cassette recorder four track thing and i would just sit in my room and make weird sounds on it particularly in high school so i was really like a i think probably i think around high school i figured out socially wh- how, what it means to be like i was just a super nerdy kid and 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 felt socially awkward and a bit you know like being an arab kid in this place and so i always felt like super much like like an interloper a little bit um and so i just spent a lot of time in my room <laughs> you know and thankfully i loved music and so i would i would play music and write music and compose even before I even knew that that's what I was doing. And uh, I would make these strange, droney, weird soundscapes, which are not too different than what I'm doing now on Radio Lab, frankly. My parents found identity in science and all that, and I just felt like I found my identity in just uh, in making music.
0: What, what were your parents like, and what do you think you took from them as part of your own personality?
1: My parents are like the hardest working people I've ever known. I mean, my mom is has been studying one protein for 40 years. Oof. <laughs> it's just one single protein. <laughs> and she has created an entire field of science around this one protein that didn't exist before. I mean, the protein existed, but the field of science didn't exist. And and she invented that and has been like working at that tirelessly. And for, I'd say a third or a half of that time, people thought she was crazy to have this idea about this protein. My dad is this relentless, um, hustler, uh, but also a doctor and a researcher. And, and they're just like really driven people. Um, and very, uh, very kind, you know. They both have very unsentimental relationships to their um, culture and their upbringing. Um, they're sort of 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 a thing and not of it at the same time. Which maybe it's just every immigrant experience. And so I think I take that particular stance from them as well.
0: Yeah, of course, we're we're all the products of where we come from yeah, and our parents totally. Um, what what was your relationship like with Lebanon? Would you go visit? I know you lived there for a few years when you were a baby, but...
1: Yeah, my relationship with Lebanon was... Um, we did go visit um, and live there for a while. And I don't remember much from that. I just remember bits and pieces because I was really young. And then mostly my relationship to Lebanon was... You know, when we moved to Tennessee... I mean, I, we grew, I grew up speaking Arabic... Um, I grew up with a very strong sense that I was Lebanese, but culturally, I didn't know what that meant. I knew what it meant in terms of the language, certainly in terms of the food, in terms of the people that we would see because we had Lebanese o- crawling all over everything. I mean, it was so many Lebanese in the house, <laughs> and like suddenly there were all these Lebanese doctors constantly around, and and um, so it was very familiar. Like the sounds and the movements and the vibrations of Lebanese culture were very familiar to me, but. I do remember, like the first time I went back to Lebanon as a, as an adult, which was in ninety four or one or something. I don't remember. No, it would have been ninety four, or five or something somewhere around there. This is when the war was over and it was finally okay to go back. And I remember, like, the feeling of like literally the feeling of touching down, and there's something about like just this intimate familiarity with the place, but other utter strangeness as well. Like I was like, oh, I get the way that people hold their bodies. Like I, oh, that's so familiar to me. Uh, and the way that they talk and the way that just the kind of those little subterranean cultural things just made so much sense to me. That was that was my relationship to Lebanon was that I was, felt so deeply a part of of Lebanon, but also completely alienated from it, you know? And always stuck in this interesting middle space.
0: There's something that I read that you've said um, where being Lebanese American has given you a heightened sense of nuance. Um, can you explain what you what you mean by that?
1: Hmm. I mean, I I think what I mean is, um, I mean, nuance nuance comes from when you you're able to be a part of you're able to sort of connect with somebody, but at the same time have a kind of analytical distance at the same time. Um, and I always feel. That being the person who was from Lebanon, so I wasn't really an American, but you go back to Lebanon and you're reminded instantly I'm not really an Arab either in the way that they define it. So you're kind of both, but neither. Being in that place, it puts you in an interest. It's a perfect stance for being a journalist, I think, because you always kind of want to be in between spaces. You know, you want to be able to sort of see, identify with a person but never over identify so you kind of have to keep an arm's length but if you don't lean in enough then you're not being empathetic right and every story has to start in empathy and so it's that it's that it's that feeling of like um in betweenness that I think you have just as a kid growing up you don't know what to call it but then it suddenly becomes your job that's kind (laughs) of how it that's that's what I think about it
0: um were you always a fantastic storyteller? or who, who was the storyteller in your family growing up?
1: Neither of them, really, neither of them. I mean, there's nothing in them that would have predestined me to be a storyteller. I think my storytelling instincts come out of being this guy who likes to put things together. Like it's it's almost as if the designer of the Porsche started out as a mechanic, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, uh, I I I'm I feel like a mechanic that then suddenly graduated into being the person who designs the car, um, because I, I I liked the engine and the way it worked, and I liked the insides of stories, and I like, ooh, it's kind of cool to start here and then to go here. Oh no, wait, maybe the the middle is the beginning, and the beginning is actually the end, right? I love that that process of composing a story. Um, but get me, like, sit me down and just have me start telling the story. I'll screw it up constantly. (laughs) I'll get stuck in certain places and I'll like hit these cul-de-sacs and start looping. And I'm like, wow, shoot, this isn't working. Uh, but if you give me a story and you say, all right, let me look at it, figure it out, figure out the right structure for it. I I will figure it out better than anyone. So there's whatever that is called, the, um, the building of a story. I'm a story builder rather than a storyteller. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. That's that's what I would say.
0: <laughs> how did you get to uh, Oberlin College? So you studied creative writing, music composition, with a special interest on, in electronic and electroacoustic music. Mm. How, how did you get there? And also, what was the conversation with your scientist mother and doctor father that they're prodigal son was going to go study <laughs> creative writing and music?
1: Um, uh, I got there because it was the only place that admitted me. I, I applied <laughs> to like four or five places, I forget, which I had, I don't know why, but I mean, it makes sense to me now in terms of what I do, but I don't know where this idea entered my mind, but I had gotten it into my head really early on that I wanted to be a film composer. That was sort of the idea that I had Gave given myself I think I really liked movie music and I just was like I want to make mu- movie music and so it, it was an idea that I had sort of stated to myself and out loud for 10 years before college and so I think by the time I was ready to go off to school everybody was like yeah all right good luck <laughs> clearly you're gonna go do that so I applied to the best music schools that I knew of which were USC, Indiana, Oberlin, and maybe one other that I'm forgetting. And Indiana turned me down. USC turned me down, which was crushing. I was crushed because I was like, that's the best film scoring. Though in retrospect, I'm really glad. Um, And then Oberlin said yes. And so um, my parents, God love them. They just never, they never put pressure on me to to be a scientist or to go in that direction. It's sort of the opposite experience that a lot of uh, immigrant kids have where you're expected to be an engineer, a doctor, or a lawyer. <laughs> and I was never, never any pressured. And they had that pressure, right? They were pressured into the things that they ended up doing, but they never put that pressure on me. So I feel really grateful. And they were like, yeah, go off and write music. We'll pay, pay for <laughs> you to do that, which is crazy. I'm like, wow, my parents are amazing. And uh, there wasn't really any conversation. It was just like, this is what I want to do. And they were like, okay.
0: When we left off, Jads was telling us about his decision to study music at Oberlin and how supportive his parents were about
1: that choice.
0: Tell me about your journey into radio after he graduated.
1: I mean, I, I came out of school with um, Oberlin with um, this idea that I was going to write music and write um, stories. I wanted to write stories. I thought short stories. And I wanted to write music. And I came out of school and tried to do that, both, and failed at both and uh four or five years in there was this new thing called the internet mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> that was happening i mean this is ninety five <laughs> six so the internet existed obviously, but it people were just think discovering it as a place to do business, right, and so you had these new things called web design places. And so I, I found myself working at a web design shop, hating it. And there was a moment where um, uh, somebody offered me a job for a lot of money to do that. And I just remember it was this like crisis moment. I was like, I, if I take this job, that means I'm gonna work in the internet. And I hate that. I can't do that. I, it's just, like, it freaked me out. And so I, I ran away from that ended up working at a um, community radio station. That was my sort of like, I just need to get back to making sound and and writing stories. And uh, my girlfriend at the time, now wife, was like, why don't you just do radio? Because it's kind of like two things together. So I started volunteering. And uh, I volunteered at, the, at, at uh, WBAI, which is sort of a very famous uh, community radio station in New York, but at the time it was falling apart. There is this a huge amount of infighting, and so they were super short-staffed, and basically I walked in at exactly the right moment, and they were just like, here is a microphone and a recorder. Go cover this protest. And so I ran out. I had no idea, like, what does it mean to cover something? Like, what do you even do? What is that? So they like, asked some questions. So I went, and I went to this place. People were yelling and screaming. I didn't even know what the issue was. I got some tape, ran back. What do I do now? Okay, like, put it on some Put it on like some real to real, like actual tape. I'd been working on a computer, but they're like, put it on this tape. Choose the best moments. Cut the tape with the scissors.
0: Oh, that's where it comes from. Cut tape. Yes. Okay, okay.
1: Are you just realizing that <laughs> yeah, right I now? I didn't know. <laughs> Oh no, maybe we used to cut tape. It's it's actually an ama- If you, I mean, as the computer generation that we are, generations plural. Um, it's an amazing thing to go backwards. Totally different way of thinking about sound because you you hold it with your fingers. And you rock the tape, like if you want to make a cut, you kind of rock it, and you're just like, and then you slice. <laughs> you, it's amazing. So I had to do that, and um, and what you end up with is a coat hanger with lots of little bits of tape hanging off of it. And you're like, okay, that's expert one, that's expert two, that's the person at the protest. And then you write your narration, record that onto tape, cut that up. And then you you just basically splice your narration to the tape, to your narration to the tape, until you have one long piece of of collaged tape, and that's your story. And I remember I had to run out at 9, cover a protest, come back at around 11, do all the snipping and cutting and writing and stringing together, and then it was on the air at, like, 3. I remember that was my first day. And I just remember, like, feeling like that was amazing. Like, that was everything i want in life just happened
0: how did you get from wbai to wnyc
1: i just kept doing it and um i i kept pitching npr um stories about about that i wanted to do and they kept saying no but then they said yes finally and then i worked on one feature for 5 months and got it onto uh, a news magazine, and that was like such a rush. And then um, I did that a bunch more, and then suddenly I I got to a place after about two years of doing it where people would actually call me to to go do stuff. And then I happened to be – then I got a a full-time job here at the station, different building, and uh, that was my first full-time job in radio was 99, 2000. Then,, uh, I quit that, and right around the time that I quit, nine eleven had happened, and the station was completely changing its formats to become all news. And in that shift, there was this sense that New Yorkers wanted to hear stories from the world because we were just in this moment where New York had been attacked. and Nobody knew why. Everyone felt naive, and we needed to understand our impact in the world better. So let's hear the stories from the world. So there was this thought, well, we want to create spaces on on the schedule where we can hear other documentaries. And so I just happened to be around when the news director at that time, Michael Alcester, had the idea to do that. And he was like, you're going to be the DJ of all of these old documentaries. And you've got three hours to do it every week. And here's a big box of old um, documentaries. And uh, just just make it. Do it. And then that, that, that was Radiolab. WNYC is about to embark on an experiment. We're calling it the Radiolab. Whoa! Survive and to find a way to survive. A big brew of people and places. I'll be your, hmm, host... Is not the right word. Curator, guide, maybe. How about DJ of documentary? Oh my god! And it god. was
0: very experimental. Like it was super, super, super weird, th- right?
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, when I mean I, I would be surprised if more than twenty people were listening to any given hour. Radio Lab in those early days.
0: Twenty people. <laughs> I know, because I mean,
1: I say that very like. There's this. There's this thing with the AM radio waves. They travel quite long distances, and apparently there was a thing where our AM waves would bounce off the Hudson River and land in Canada, and scramble the stations in Canada. And the Canadians hated that, so they'd they'd yell at the FCC, who then yell at us, and the FCC mandated that we cut our power at eight o'clock which is exactly when I aired. So unless you were hugging the transmitter, you could not hear radio Lab. And I experienced this one day because the show was always live. But one day I got it done ahead of time and somebody else was doing it and I was driving with my family and I heard the show come on and it was just like, brruh, brruh, I'm the and that's what it sounded like. And I was like, oh my God, no one's hearing me. <laughs> <laughs> And that was that was the rude awakening. I realized, oh right, this no wonder they're letting me do whatever I want because no one can hear it.
0: How long did that go on for? Where nobody I was say listening.
1: About a year and a half. Holy <laughs> shit. <laughs> I felt insulted. I felt <laughs> demeaned. I was like, where is my audience? <laughs> I deserve tens of thousands hundreds of thousands of people they're not there this is horrible <laughs> but actually what i needed was to be ignored for a long time and to get the experimental stuff out of my system you know basic stuff like figure out how to talk into a mic it's a surprisingly hard thing i think kids these days says the old guy <laughs> <laughs> they i think they're born and they they're just like ah oh, the mic at last, you know I think a lot of like a lot of people come and they just sit down in front of the mic and they're so at ease. It took me a long time to figure out like who who am I in front of this black fuzzy thing um, that's a weird existential question you know you got to figure it out um, you know look like, what what kind of stories do I want to do i don't i didn't know I needed to figure that out, so I needed to be left alone and ignored, and so it was great it was i i I fully advocate for um, benign neglect as professional development.
0: Yeah, and like getting paid for it. That's great. Well, getting paid is...
1: (laughs) Sometimes. That (laughs) happens sometimes. (laughs) Not always.
0: (laughs) (laughs) When did you meet Robert? How did Robert come into... Who became your co-host on Radio Lab? How did you meet Robert Krolwich?
1: I met Robert... So this is during the period of benign neglect. Um, One of the ways that I... Ensured that the station wouldn't fire me was I did other things for the station. So uh, I would make promos for the station, and uh, you know, little promos. We did a whole series of promos about like little uh, vignettes of of portraits of listeners who are listening to the radio. So I remember one in particular, like a, a florist. Who had the radio on as he's cutting flowers, and he'd say, "All right, I, have the tulips are the best, especially the tulips from uh, Holland." But uh, you know, I just love to cut, snip, 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 cut all the tulips while listening to the news. It keeps me informed, and you know, it's like one of these things, and it's like twenty-five seconds, and it's gonna like very sound-rich. <laughs> so that was the way that we convinced them to keep Radiolab happening. Um, and so Robert was one of the people that I made a promo with, not the kind I'm describing, but we, at one point I had to just record people reading, um, uh, like, um, what's the word trying to convince other people to give money to the station. Mm. Right. And so they gave me a list of people to go and just have them read a script. And Robert was on the list. And Robert was the one guy at the very end of the process who refused to read the script that I gave him. Uh, And I I now know that to be like, (laughs) that is just a law of Robert. He will say what he's going to say. He's not going to read your words. And God, I love him for it. But at the time, he didn't want to read my words. Um, He rewrote it on the spot in this way that was hilarious and baffling and weird. And we just started talking the day that I recorded him. And I think initially it was just like, I was doing all of the things that he was doing 25 years earlier. I had worked WBAI, which is where he started. I went to Oberlin, which is where he went to school. And then I had done some work at at NPR and he was part of the first wave of NPR reporters. And so it was just kind of this weird, like, Oh God, you, we, we had instant chemistry and also these weird symmetries. So we just had breakfast the next morning and, um, we, we just kind of got on in that way that like that hasn't happened to me since you know we just like connected and it was so easy to talk to him one of those like friends where like an hour and a half goes by and you don't even notice and uh that was it we would have breakfast at once every month and um i have i was doing a show called radio lab at that point and um it was a moment in the show where they, they WNYC, decided, eh, we're going to shut this thing down. You've had your fun. Uh, let's, let's wind this little art project down. And so they, they um, gave me this opportunity to do this thing called uh, like, a, a, a profile of Wagner's Ring Cycle, which was coming to town. Uh, well,
0: I have no idea what that
1: is. So Wagner, one of the great um, German composers uh, uh, in all of classical music, and he wrote this thing called The Ring Cycle, which is four hours, sorry, four operas uh, encompassing 20 hours. And so it was coming to town, and it's this like, big event. It's like Woodstock or something. Every time it happens, people who love Wagner lose their mind, and they they schedule their whole lives around it. So they were like, do a a documentary about this. And sort of the implicit understanding was that if I did it well, maybe they'd reconsider shutting down Radiolab. Anyhow, this is a long story, the only point of which is that I did the documentary. When you see a lot of people making a huge fuss over a work of art or an event or a happening, you get curious. It got on the air. Robert heard it and was like, that was pretty good. Shit. Do you want to do some, try some stuff? ultimately I think we just started building this style together that was a style of like taking that chemistry that we had as people and matching that with crazy editing and sound design and these big thinky ideas of science and it's yeah so it just somehow it spilled out of our relationship you know
0: so um can you tell me what Radiolab is in one sentence oh
2: man (laughs)
1: a horrible question um (laughs) it is a it is a series it's a series it's a show it's a space it's a it's a long-running series on the radio and now on the podcast primarily that is all about investigating the beautiful chaotic complexities of life uh and finding wonderfully simple ways to explain those complexities and wonderful ways of complicating the simple. Mm-hmm. And we do it through through <clears throat> stories and every trick that has ever been used on the radio. So it's a, it's a show that very much is about the craft of making radio, but it's also about investigating a complicated world. Yeah, I don't know if that's the right... That's It that wasn't a sentence. <laughs> I don't know if I can ever make it into a sentence, but yeah.
0: That was great. Um, okay, so Radiolab, uh, since this these early days with Robert and, and figuring stuff out together, has become an institution. Two million plus weekly listeners to the radio and the podcast. Are you going to correct that statistic?
1: Uh, here's my, my my latest numbers. I know Tell that me. there's like two million-ish on the radio. And monthly to the podcast, I think we're in the 10 million range. so but that's not weekly but monthly i'd say 10 million so that plus the 2 million i don't know i mean the we added all of the listeners on the podcast up a while back and if you add the more perfect people and the radio lab people and now the dolly parton people it's like 130 million a year
0: that's a big number of humans. Uh, two Peabody Awards yes. and uh, a team of 20-some producers working on bi-monthly program for Radio Lab, More mm-hmm. Perfect, Dolly Parton's. Um, and your sound and style have legitimately shaped the way thousands of podcasts aspire to sound like, Kerning Cultures included. Tell me about the first time that you realized that you were a big deal. When was the first time you realized you were famous?
1: I don't know. It's a quiet kind of fame, you know, because it's... Your picture and your face isn't attached to the voice um most days, most months, I just' i for, I honestly forget um every so often, there was a time I was walking down my block, uh not my block but the block over, and somebody came out of their house because they they heard my voice uh talking to my kid. so I was talking to my kid about something, and then they ran out and they were like, "Oh my God. You're, it's you. <laughs> and it's like in those moments I some, that it's sometimes like there's a beat at when that happens where I think, what do they mean? And then I remember, oh, right, I'm the guy who who tells them the stories on the, on the radio. Um, I, it's almost like in that moment you have to board a plane in your mind, fly all the way across the world and land the plane because I feel very far away psychically and spiritually from – That guy. I mean, that guy is me, but that guy in that person's mind, I feel very far away from that. I'm just like I don't. Most days, I don't think about myself that way. I have to remind myself, like, not to be an on the street, because they're going to experience that not as a just a normal, but as Jad being an.
0: In 2011, you were awarded the MacArthur grant, which is the genius grant. Um, mm-hmm. Can you put me in the moment of that day when you received the news? And then what did that do for you afterwards? Was there this pressure to continue to produce at a genius standard?
1: Um, it was a weird day. It was a weird day. Um, I was on the plane. I was on the plane. I can't remember where I was coming from. But I was on the plane. We just landed at LaGuardia, and uh, I got an email with no subject line that said, uh, Dear Mr. Boomerad, please call me. I have some very important news to deliver or something like that. And you are like, if you get an email with no subject line, you're like, this is a scam <laughs> or something. <laughs> so I sort of looked at it. and I was like, I think this is a scam. I should delete. But then I looked at the from, and it said MacArthur Foundation. And I was like, interesting. I don't know what that means. I emailed him back, and I said, okay, what's your number? He emailed me back. I said, okay, this sounds like a, re- a legitimate human. So then I ha- I had gotten off the plane. I had forgotten my wallet on the plane <laughs> and then my luggage was lost so I, I, I did get my wallet but I remember this I was this a
0: terrible the, day <laughs> <you> know,
1: <laughs> so I remember this is a moment where I was like you're in that weird like oh, I've just been disconnected from my life I don't have ID and I don't have luggage so you feel already a little bit like you're off the grid and then the guy called and he was I forget his name but he he said something like I just want to let you know that you are a recipient of the MacArthur so-and-so. And I was like, what? What are you talking about? And then he said, no, I just need to ask you one question, and then you'll never hear from me again. Well, how do you spell your name? I was like, uh, And I gave him my spelling. And then he says, I'm going to read to you a paragraph. Tell me if you have any problems with this. And it was something like, Jada Umrad is so-and-so. He has worked in radio and, re- and defined a new aesthetic and something-something public radio. And I was like, wait, what? what? I did that? He's like, do you have any issues with that? I was like, no, it's awesome, but what, what? And then he's like, okay, you'll never hear from me again, click. And then literally that was it. I was just standing there in LaGuardia in the line for the reclaim your luggage thing. (laughs) And I was like, what, did that just happen? It feels like a burden on some level. Um, And then it feels amazing, you know? And then you're just like, oh, this is great. Um, People return your phone calls, you know, in a way that they didn't earlier. And also like there's, there are times when it's like 4am and you're trying to work on a story and it's not working. And as you know, every story makes you feel stupid. Um, it humiliates you. And there are times in those moments when I'm like, I thought I was supposed to be better at this. And then you say to yourself, well, they gave me that genius thing. So I must not be as stupid as I feel right now. <laughs> and so you say that to yourself and it does help. It does. Um, but other than that, at this point, it is um it's a really cool distinction. um I've long since spent the money on, <laughs> on my kids' education, and also I'm building a little studio in my house uh, and uh now it's just a thing I say to myself sometimes at four a m
0: <laughs> <laughs> um I want to be respectful of your time. You gave me an hour. Yeah. Could I take another half hour of it or do you have to I,
1: go? I, I have to go. Okay. So here's what I will tell you. Where are okay. you staying?
0: Uh, I'm in Manhattan.
1: Okay. You can, if you want, you can ride in the car with me to get my kids. Okay. Um, different sound quality, but you can ask me some questions in the car if you want.
0: Yeah, sure. Okay. <laughs> that would be great. Let's, <laughs> let's do that.
1: Okay. All right. I'm going to hit stop. <laughs>
0: I've never done this on the go before. <laughs> okay. Here we go. Um We're on the move. <laughs> I can go around, okay. I'll go around. Thank you. Hello. Okay
1: pretty quiet
0: in here. Yeah, this is good. <laughs> so I met with Jads in February of 2020. And at that time, it was something of a pivotal moment in Radiolab's history because his co-host, Robert Krolowicz, had just announced that he was going to retire from the show after some 17 years of producing it together. Um so this this past January, Robert left the show after some 17 years of working together and, and the fabulous chemistry that you have together. Can you um, can you tell me what it's been like for you to continue, I know there's other shows in addition to that, but that sort of flagship show, what it's been like to continue Radio Lab without Robert and what's the dialogue in your head in terms of what this next chapter looks like for for you flying solo with an amazing team behind you?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's um, personally sad for me, you know? Um, I think about it symbolically, and I'm like, man, Robert's leaving, and I I feel the pain of that. He's such a soulmate, a soul slash studio mate, and uh, it's weird to think of doing the show without him. At the same time, there's a part of me that thinks, well, you know, he and I are gonna be friends, and we're still gonna have breakfast, once a month and it's gonna be like so there's nothing I'm I personally am losing um, there's part of me that's excited because I'm like this is actually um, like a new beginning um, when when in the in the course of doing something for 18 years you find yourself back at the starting line that just feels like a gift and we get to say to ourselves and to our audience like this is a collective it has been for a long long time but now we get to say that um, there's still been uh, for uh, up until now this superstructure of two guys like a duet and spiritually i think that's where it came from but it's evolved along the way and it's become a much bigger group and uh now it's about the group it's about this this collective this team and uh, i think that's the story we're going to tell and uh that feels pretty exciting um
0: so i know that there was a an episode that uh, Robert has said that he wanted to do about snail sex or something <laughs> that that you refused. What's an episode that you've always wanted to do that, that hasn't come to life yet, maybe because somebody shut it down?
1: I want to make a series of meditation tapes and put them on Radiolab. And it's like they're going to be, you know, you know, these like these things that are happening right now, like where you have your app and you hit meditate and it tells you in a deep breath, just let breathe in, breathe out, take all the troubles, breathe it in and now let it out through your fingertips. You know, like, like they're kind of hilarious and sort of hokey, but also like we all freaking need them. So I want to make a very radio labby version of that that is deeply subversive, but also deeply calming. So... That's, that's the latest thing. Like I, th- Those are the kinds of ideas I have these days where it's like maybe not like do an important documentary about or, uh, you know, race in America, which we've kind of done a lot of that kind of stuff, but I want to make like a meditation tape, a weird-ass meditation tape.
0: Um, do you ever get tired of being curious all the time?
1: I get tired of a certain kind of curiosity. Um, there's a... Their there, curiosity can be cruel in a way, you know. Like finding someone's pain interesting is kind of cruel in a way. Um, and so there's a certain kind of curiosity that's that's divorced from empathy that I've gotten tired of, and that you know we've done on certain. I mean, I, we've made that mistake I think sometimes. And so I do, now that I th- now I think about it as like it can never come cheap. You know, like whether it's curiosity or wonder or any of these sort of aspects that are important to our stories, they have to be hard earned. And so if you're curious about somebody, you should also be willing to share yourself in the process um, and to be vulnerable to them in the way that they're being vulnerable to you. I think that's just like a prerequisite. Um, It's gotta begin in empathy. it can't be a kind of clinical, like distant, look down your nose kind of curiosity. Um, so I think a lot about that, but like getting tired of curiosity feels like death on some <laughs> fundamental <laughs> level. So no, like I think as a storyteller and as a human, I I have to never get to that place. So this is this is the this, this is, is the, the school. school. Okay. So uh, we're going to hop out. Okay. At this point, um, we had cool. arrived at
0: Jad's arrived kids' school in Brooklyn. I, I went inside <laughs> with him uh, with all my wires <laughs> following me, trying not to trip over them. Uh, and he, uh, we, we met his kids. They were playing soccer in the gymnasium uh, with some friends. Which, which one?
1: That's uh, in the yellow and blue. <laughs> Emil, we got to
0: go, man. And then we got into the car and I rode with them a little longer, uh, running a few errands, like dropping the kids off at their reading lessons. So, what's your name? Emil. You're Emil. How old are you? 10. You're 10. What about you? My name is and I'm seven turning eight on this Monday. This Monday? Happy birthday. What are you gonna do for your birthday?
2: I have no idea.
0: Um, I asked his kids if they listen to podcasts. If they've listened to their dad, and uh, they said they love podcasts, but they don't listen to Radiolab. What
1: Radiolab? Yeah, maybe I have heard it, but um, uh, the name of the name I don't I might might not have heard it mentioned. What do you mean? You know that I work on a, sh- a show called Radiolab? I know, but still, maybe I have heard it, but maybe I didn't know I was hearing it. <laughs> oh, I see. I see. Uh,
0: and then it was time to say goodbye and and the interview in a totally different part of the city from where it began. Um, and honestly, they say don't meet your heroes, but spending the afternoon with Shad and his boys, somehow I admired him even more
1: to all my classmates that you're famous. Uh, I, mean, I hope so. Yeah, I don't know that that's a great idea. <laughs> I'm probably not famous with your classmates. So yeah, like, you are. Okay. Uh, my uh my uh, friend Lila.
2: This episode was produced by Tamara Rasamni, Alex Atak, Heba Fisher, and myself, Dana Balut. Sound design by Alex Atak, and fact checking by Zena Duwaided. Our original Sting was composed by Ramzi Bashur and El Empire is produced by the Kearney Cultures Network. And if you're liking El Empire, please subscribe to the show so you'll never miss an episode. Also, leave us a rating and a review on whatever podcast app you're listening to us from. Be honest, but also give us a little love. It really helps boost our rankings so that other listeners can find us on the podcast libraries. And next week on El Empire... I mean, that that
0: was raised in a few of the meetings where I was asked, uh, who takes care of your children? Um, I was asked, how do you juggle being a mother um, and, and being an entrepreneur? I was asked if the customers of Mom's World were my friends. I got what, all sorts of questions. What would you say to in response? Yeah. So, I mean, these, again— um, it, it comes with the territory. It, it's irrelevant for me. Uh, what was relevant for me was having a business that had very, very strong fundamentals that spoke for itself.
2: That's in one week. Thanks for listening, guys. Take care.